0: Father, I would ask that you would reveal things from your word that we had not previously seen or that you would solidify our views and melt them into one with the scripture that you give us. May we not hold to our own views and reasonings but may we trust in you for what truth is and what seems to be right. May that be grounded in truth and not in error. So, Father, as we continue to look at your word, we ask that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to digress into the scriptures a little bit. We're going to pick it up in verse 21, I believe, of the book of Acts, chapter 26. But in Paul, in verses 25 and 26 of that chapter, he says that what he believes is true and reasonable. He has gone through... The contemplative process. It seemed good to him. Now, we are going to pick up the message in verse 21, chapter 26. But to supply a little bit of context, we're going to recall what Paul went through before Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. And so in verses 15 and 16, Paul explains what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Remember, we've gone through this testimony a couple of times. And then Paul continues his testimony before the court in verses 17 and 18, he says, I will rescue you from your people, from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open the eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul was sent to do or to accomplish at least five things. And I gave you those five things a few weeks ago. Number one, open their eyes. Number two, turn them from darkness to light. Number three, from the power of Satan to God. Number four, so they may receive forgiveness of sins. And number five, to have a place in the kingdom believing in Jesus. And then King Agrippa in verse 19, he he told him that he was not disobedient to the vision that he had on the road to Damascus. Verse 24 To those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and to all Judea, and to the Gentiles, also I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. So we're given the explanation why the Jews wanted to kill Paul. It's three things right here. He wanted them to repent, turn to God, and demonstrate repentance by works. Now, this is the calling of all of us we're to repent. And the things that we believe to be true about the world, we're to contemplate them and see if they are true. And if it seems like they are not true, don't believe it. One of the things in the world, Patty and I were talking about this, that's coming up in this next year, is misinformation and disinformation. There's going to be so much information come across, and I think she was listening to Jack Hibbs, and Jack Hibbs said, Don't believe it. If it doesn't seem right, don't buy into it, especially if it comes from the mainstream media. I think there's a few people that you can trust that are out there that try not to lead us astray, although they are not perfect, but I I think there's a way we can have discernment. And so you want to use that seemingly to lead you into the truth. So we are all to repent forget what we believed about the world and turn to god and says do not love the world or the things of the world then after the turning to god we're to demonstrate our repentance by the works that we do not that the works save us but he calls us to specific tasks each one of us has a task maybe several tasks and we're supposed to follow through with those now, people do not want to explain or have explained to them that what they're doing is wrong or sinful or what they believe is wrong or sinful. Have you ever tried to correct a child that is obstinate? They don't want to believe what you're saying. They just will tell you no. If, if you give them some instruction because it's good, they might still say, no, I'm not going to do it. My grandson, my son just told me that my grandson, he was telling him that he would take him to go get some chicken fingers or something somewhere. And he said, well, if I'm going to do that, I want you to cut up the Christmas tree and put it into the uh, green recycle bin. And so he went out there. He wanted the chicken, so he cut up the Christmas tree. He put it in the recycle bin. But, you know, a Christmas tree, after it's been sitting, there's a mess that's behind it. It was in the backyard. And he said, you got to clean up the mess. And he goes, you know, this is part of the deal. If you believe you want to have part of this deal, you need to go clean up that mess. And he goes, no, I don't want to do it and he goes okay well you don't want he didn't believe that it was important to do that part as well to get the chicken fingers and he had to be convinced that you need to clean that up you know so it's this process he's going through in his mind but he didn't want to be told to do something he didn't want to do we're all like that when the government tells you to do something what do you say yeah I'm right behind whatever they tell me to do. We don't want to do what we are instructed to do. Unless you are of the mindset, I will submit. I will go through with this. When Christ asks us to do something in the scripture, the first reaction of the flesh is, no, I don't want to do that. You have to, with forethought and determination, say, I will, even though I don't want to do it, I will follow through. And demonstrating repentance through deeds, when God asks us to do something, we can think of every reason in the world why we won't do it, how much discomfort is going to cause us. I have to get out of my little comfort zone in order to accomplish something for God. And he goes, go ahead and do it. I will be with you. So this is why the Jews wanted to kill Paul. Because Paul is telling, you need to repent of what you think is correct and what leads to salvation. You need to turn to God and then do those works in keeping with repentance. And they said, no, we like just the way we are. And you need to change the way you think. And we're going to kill you to stop you from promulgating your message out there. So going on here in verse 22. Paul continues and says, But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the child would suffer and, as the the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now, as Paul is going from town to town, And first he goes to the synagogues. He explains to them from the scriptures that Jesus, who was born as a child, grew up, became the sacrifice of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He explained all this from the Old Testament. He did not explain it from the New Testament. Now, I think most of you are familiar with Psalm 53, and, excuse me, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And I'm going to read to you Isaiah 53. It's only a few verses. They go through about 12 verses. And see if you can pick out it being about Jesus Christ. Now just listen. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth yet it was the lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and through the lord uh, and though the lord makes his life a guilt offering he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the lord will prosper in his hand after the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. Now, do you see Christ in there? I mean it's, it's more than evident especially once Christ has been crucified you look back at this and you say that's it. But it's hard to point to the future and how this would apply. But you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, let's see if this one applies as well. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter 22 of Psalm. But in verse 12, it begins, "...many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me." roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart has turned to wax it has melted away within me my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth you lay me in the dust of death dogs have surrounded me a band of evil men has encircled me they have pierced my hands and my feet I count all my bones people stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing but you, O Lord, be not far off, O my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is clearly talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in hindsight, you could look back and say, That's Jesus being crucified. This is what happened to him on the cross. And that's what Paul would do was going from synagogue to synagogue. And yet he was rejected repeatedly in all the synagogues that he would go to. Some would receive the message, but the synagogue would reject him. And that's why he went to the Gentiles. And of course, this book of Acts here, especially 26 Paul has given his testimony. This is our heritage. This is where we look back and go, wow, that's the reason why we're here in church is because of what Paul did. And he endured this and the Lord said, we're going to write this down so generations in the future for thousands of years will be able to read how salvation has come to us. You see the purpose of the book of Acts here. I mean, so many things are made clear in this book. Now, these are just two places that Paul would have used to convince people of the truth And at this point in his testimony, he turns to Festus. And by the way, as he's given this testimony, I believe it was much more than what we're reading here. We're just giving, just give us the facts, ma'am. Where is that from? Yeah. Oh, we are old, aren't we? If we know who that is and who's the guy that said it? Joe Friday. Okay, so if you don't know what that is. Never mind, you can go look it up. <clears throat> so he, he goes before Festus here, and Festus is going to talk to him. At, at this point, verse 24, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. He says, you are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Now, this is classic. This is what people do that don't want to be told to repent, turn to God, And do works in keeping with repentance. They make a personal attack on the person who's delivering the message. Now, I haven't experienced this really severely every time I've gone gone out and witnessed. You know, just for the fact that I've had opposition from other quarters, but really not from anybody who would consider themselves an atheist and pointing their finger at me and just not wanting to hear it. I've, I've never had that happen. Lord willing, I I never do, and people are receptive whenever I give the gospel. Hopefully that will be the case. But once people have rejected the gospel, they often resort to what is known as an ad hominem attack. That's where you attack the person. If you listen to any of the new atheists which are out there, they will say things like, you're crazy. You're ignorant, you're uneducated, you're simple-minded, you're stupid or you're deceived because you believe that Bible that was put together, that quote-unquote was written by men and they don't want to investigate it. Now, I've given Bibles to family members and I know it's never been read. It's never been opened, it's never been checked to see the authenticity or if it seems like it's true, where you start thinking through these things. Now, in church here, I've had several conversations over the years about different things in Scripture. Recently, about what day was Jesus crucified on? And also, did Jesus really descend to hell? Is that what he did? And, and, and all kinds of things. And we talk about those, and we base it on what seems to be the proper interpretation of Scripture. And that's where you're thinking you're, you're using deductive reasoning and you're, you're looking in inductively into the scriptures and going, is all that the information that's available on that particular subject? That's what we're supposed to do. Does it seem right? Like right now, you're listening to me, but subconsciously you're going, does that seem to be right? You're, you're judging what I'm saying and you're supposed to judge what I'm saying. You're saying, Oh, well, he's okay, but the delivery, you know, I don't know about that. And the stuff he's saying is true, I get that, and I don't think he knows enough about that. So you're doing all of that as you listen to me. What seems to be right, what seems to be correct. Well, Paul responds in verse 25, and he says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true true. And reasonable. So it seems to Paul to be true. And he's making this case also to Festus. That this is reasonable. This is truthful. It seems that way, especially when you go through the scriptures and look at what history has already transpired. Now those of us who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not have a blind faith. There are people in this world that have a blind faith They just accept whatever they're told, and they run with it. They just grab hold of it. Now, having this reasonable faith, how do we check it out? Well, if you started examining some of the other scriptures, uh, and not just some of the other scriptures that are outside what people would consider scripture, like some of the Hindu writings and Buddhist writings, and if you went to the Quran and you started looking at that stuff, when you look at the scriptures... For us, Christian scriptures, there are no absurdities. There's nothing in there that would cause you to just go, that doesn't seem right to me. Or if it does seem like that, you just don't have enough information because God has authored it, and we just need to have more understanding of what's there because it has proven itself true to be a document derived from deity. And that's because of the prophecies that are in scripture. That's why we can trust it. There are no other documents from antiquity that have prophecy like the Bible does and have the track record of always being true. Now, for instance, if you, I'm going to be going over to Africa, but we've been over in um, Cambodia, and the big religion in Cambodia is Buddhism. And Buddhism, it is a godless religion and there're sci-fi books with that theme in it the actors have done movies about buddhism and you're trying to attain enlightenment and and devoid yourself of all suffering and just clear your mind to become one with the collective up in who knows where and you know that that's the view of buddhism and hinduism and there's different sects of buddhism there's tibetan buddhism and there's zen buddhism zen buddhism is mostly in japan and Tibetan, and there's a few other sects of Buddhism. But they have this karma, and they deal with karma. Now, do you think suffering of others should allow it to just take its course and you not intercede if you can? That doesn't seem right to me. If you see somebody suffering, and you can stop the suffering by just doing something, should you do it? The answer is Yes. In Buddhism, no, because they are paying for past heinous sins in a previous life, and they've got to work through that suffering in order to obtain enlightenment. That's karma. That doesn't seem right to me. Now, there's this article that was written by Dale Debaski, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He worked in a Buddhist school teaching for nine years. A girl was having trouble memorizing material in the class for tests. And this is what he writes about being in that Buddhist school. He says, I remember one student who was having problems memorizing material for tests. Distraught, she went to the monks who explained to her that she was having such trouble now because in the past she was a murderous dictator who burned books and so now in this life she is doomed to forever be learning challenged what is that you know and that's like the teaching of buddhism that doesn't seem right to me and how do you know that you've lived these past lives people make it up in their heads You know, these things that they think are true, they just, oh yeah, they establish them and they just tell somebody something that will give an explanation for why they're suffering so much. And so if we're suffering in here, according to Buddhism, it's because we have committed heinous crimes in the past and in our past lives and now we're paying for that. And if anybody intercedes and interrupts, that's going to interrupt the progression and you're going to have to come back and do a do-over. Groundhog Day, just over and over and over until you get it right. By the way, Groundhog Day... It's Buddhism. That's what it is. You just do it until you get it right. And he finally, at the end of the movie, I think it's a fantastic movie, but at the end of the movie, he gets it right. And he goes on, you know, so to speak. And it's really appealing to see that type of story until you look at the undergirding. That is just terrible. That's why Mother Teresa was in Calcutta, because they had leave these orphans out on the street just to die. And she would take them in, and she'd take care of them. And she was a good Catholic nun. Of course, she had a problem with Mary. Well, I have a problem with her having a problem with Mary. She didn't have a problem with Mary. But it's this idea that you do something to help people. But Buddhism is not like that. Buddhism is a selfish or selfishly motivated love of self, so to speak. Dr. Walton Martin writes this. If you remember who he was, he he wrote a book kingdom of the cults it says the love of self is first last and always for in almost every area of the world where buddhism of any form holds sway there stalks the specter of disease hunger moral and spiritual decay which is true i have seen it firsthand in these countries and so it doesn't seem right that this would be the way to enlightenment. it well what about atheism well, you know, you have to look at these things. You have to ponder them. You have to consider them to see if they're true. Atheism says there is no God. Now, at least two places in the Psalms it says the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Because, plainly, what we can know about God has been plainly revealed, being seen through what has been made. That's Romans chapter 1. Now, being an atheist, and you've heard me say this before, being an atheist implies omniscience that you know. In the entire universe and beyond, there is no God. That is the most foolish, ridiculous stand you could possibly take. Now, it just for instance, I, I've told you about astronomy. I love astronomy and things I, I learned in there. How many planets are there, or excuse me, how many stars are there in our galaxy that's here? There's more stars in our galaxy than there are grains of sand on the earth. I mean, that's how many there are. How many galaxies are there? There are more galaxies in our universe than there are grains of sand on this earth. It's innumerable. How big is the universe? They don't know. They can only see 13 and a half billion light years out there. What's beyond that? Have no idea what's beyond that yet. There is no God. And they tell us that. They don't even know what's in the depths of the ocean. They're discovering new things all the time. Yet there is no God. They can't tell you how many cells are in your body and how many you just lost by standing around. They have no idea how the inside of a cell works. They have no idea where the soul is. You know, they're they're talking about this Noah Uvalde, Noah Harari, whatever his name is. He's with the WEF, World Economic Forum. And he says, we're going to be downloading your minds into a computer, and you're going to be transhuman, so to speak. Not trans in a sexual way, but you're going to be other than human. And, but they don't even know about consciousness. Where is consciousness? You know, you wake up, and it's you. You're inside. You are a conscious being, and you Possess a body, and they think they're going to download your brain into a computer. How do you download a consciousness? By the way, where is the consciousness? Is it in your heart, your toe, your brain, your eye? Can you dissect the brain and go, oh, there's the consciousness right there? The consciousness that we have is spiritual. It's a weird concept, but it's not part of the body, it just inhabits the body. The soul, the spirit, you know, we, we are existing, but we are in that Paul calls it a tent. And somebody who is an atheist says, no, it's just all chemical reactions. Then you are meaningless. If that is the case, if there is no spirituality to you at all, you are meaningless. And that's what the atheist believes. And it applies on omniscience. Now, it also ignores the laws in the universe that originate from the lawgiver. There are all kinds of laws that govern us in this universe. You cannot have a law without a lawgiver. Even uh, what's his name? Um, not Sam Harris. Um, Dave Hawkins. Uh, whatever his name is, a first name. He says that the world looks like it was created by a designer. If it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck. It's a duck, but he denies that, and it's just foolishness the way that he talks, and he also uh, would uh, completely forget this idea of entropy, where everything goes from order to disorder, and those who are evolutionists would say, no, we're going up, but we're not, we're going down down. Everything is going to burn out, decay, and fall apart. Well, what about Islam? Now you're going to like this one. In the Hadith, do you know how tall Adam was? 90 feet tall. Does that seem right to you? 90 feet tall. Do you know where the sun sets? You thought it set... In the West. No. It doesn't set in the West. Somebody, I I don't know if it was Muhammad or who it was, took a trip and they found that it sets in some murky hot water. That's where the sun sets. You will not find something like that in the scriptures. Also, Muhammad thought the world is flat. It's, It's recorded. He thinks it's flat. It's spread out like a sheet. Now, I know there's a movement to say the world is flat. Those people are just a little tilted in their mind. They are not thinking correctly. That doesn't seem right to me, especially when I look at the moon. It's round. It's a, it's a ball, and I can observe that. And the other planets, I look through telescopes. I can see that they're round. The earth is round. It's not flat, like Muhammad said. And there are other absurdities that are in the Quran that's how we know it's not correct it doesn't seem right after you follow those absurdities and not to mention the absurdities in Christian cults that you can become a God and you can get your own planet and you're not going to heaven only 144,000 are and that Jesus came to the Americas after his resurrection and Zion is in Missouri I mean all of these things are absurdities and Christianity doesn't have these Uh, my professor in college, Dr. Donald Thorson, he said that we have a reasonable faith. The Bible specifically it gives reasonable explanations for our existence. It elucidates subjects such as the origin of life and the existence of death and after death. It provides moral clarity, right and wrong, what is moral and immoral. It gives insight as to what the social construct works best for our society to function well. Uh, There are examples of relationship guidelines for marriage, for family, for child rearing, for friendship and for love. And it lays out a framework for how government should work amongst other things. And it comes right alongside its concomitant with reality. This is what works. That's why Christianity is reasonable. It seems to be right. So verse 26 The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it is not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa avoids the question. He says, then Agrippa said to Paul... Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God <clears throat> that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. So he uses what's known as an interrogative here. There are certain clauses that you can use when you're speaking or you're writing. Some are declarative statements. There are imperative statements. There is exclamative, exclamatory or exclamative statements. But this is an interrogative. This is something that Jesus used when asked a question. You answer the question with a question. And that's a way to promote a philosophical type of discourse where you cause the person to think that's questioning you. Well, there's also a way to use an interrogative to keep from answering the question. And that's what Agrippa did. And he says, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He's answering the question with a question to avoid answering the question. Did you catch that? That's what he did here. People will do that too. They'll just answer questions or ask questions in response to the questions you ask them to keep from getting to the heart of the issue. They're evading what they need to really focus on. So in closing all of this, Paul wanted Agrippa and everybody listening to become a Christian. And Agrippa was probably almost a Christian. There's an almost Christian and there's an altogether Christian. And I would say now it's time to ask, which one are you? Which one am I? Have I repented, turned to God and doing works that are in keeping with repentance? Or am I just an almost Christian? God would have all of us be an all together Christian that's what we're supposed to walk away with I believe today but alas Agrippa he never made the transfer at least that we know of now he could have said I agree with you Paul this seems right I want to follow Jesus Christ he could have said that but he didn't so for all of us in here if someone who doubts whether they are either an almost Christian or altogether Christian if you want to be an altogether Christian just as we're singing the song and Kim you can go ahead and come on up as we're singing the song here before we receive communion you just say Jesus I'd like to be an altogether Christian I want to be in with both feet I want to dive into the deep end of the pool I don't want to wade with water around my ankles just kind of testing to see if it's warm enough for me to get in there if I feel comfortable if you do that Jesus, I'm confident, Jesus will say, great, let's get going. And he will set a course for you in your life that will be exciting, it will be renewed, and it will be troublesome and trying. And that's okay, because he's the one that's in control. He's the one that's shaping us for his good, for his means. Now, what we're going to do at this point As Kim is playing, if you want to be an altogether Christian, just say, Jesus, make me that altogether Christian. If you're an almost Christian, just simply say, Jesus, I need all of you. I want to be saved. Bring me into your kingdom. If you do that, you will have satisfaction of the soul, and God will work his will in you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, in recognition of Jesus and his sacrifice and what we read in Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to receive communion and the lights will be dimmed in the center of the room. And once that takes place and Kim starts playing, just remain in your seats and the men will come forward and they will pass out the cup and the cracker and we can participate in receiving it together if you just hold on to it.